Welcome to the American Security Council Protecting Our Freedoms podcast. The mission of the American Security Council is to educate and engage American citizens on national security matters, economic security matters, and the need for moral leadership in the United States of America. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Protecting Our Freedoms. I am your host, Joy Vatrabeck. And with me is Mark Renahan, my co-host. How's everyone doing? Today's podcast, we have Alan Dowd back, our senior fellow here at the American Security Council Foundation. And we will be discussing his new article titled, Order of Magnitude. This is the first in his two-part series, which we will be posting the second part uh, next week. And you can find his current article and then the next week's article on our website at www.ascf.us under Position Papers and the Dowd Report. And while you're there, we have a special one-time, well, special offer, limited time offer, I will say. Um, any donation of $25 or more, and you will get Mark Levin's American Marxism book. I didn't know that. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Giving away books. I yes, like it. Yes, we are. Welcome back, Alan. How are you? Good to be back. Uh, doing fine, Joy. How are you? Hi, Mark. Hi, Joy. Hi, Alan. It's it's nice to finally meet you. I have read some of your articles, and I've I've heard your name mentioned many many times. So it's going to be fun chatting with you. As I told Joy after reading your articles, he's way smarter than I am. So I guess I'll learn something today. So I'm looking forward. To it. I, I doubt that. I look for. I'm sure we'll all learn something. But happy to yes, be here. It's always yeah. good to chat with Joy, and glad to have another one on the call or the podcast. Thanks, Alan. And on this podcast, uh, we're going to discuss. Uh, why a rules-based democratic order, or otherwise called the liber um, liberal international order, was implemented, and why it is in danger of being replaced by an autocratic regime. Alan, uh, can you explain, first of all, what the rules-based democratic order is and why it was implemented? Well, I think it's... Uh for Americans, and I think for a lot of people in what used to be known as the, the Western world, uh, the free world, uh, its uh, roots really, I think, stretch back to the, the end of World War I, uh, Wilson's ideas about what uh, a reordered world could look like uh, are kind of uh, uh, the, uh, the outlines of what we now call the liberal democratic order, the liberal national order. But really, it began to take momentum and take firm shape with the uh, Atlantic Charter, which, uh, as you guys know, uh, Churchill and FDR wrote uh, uh, before America's entry into World War II. But Britain had already been in for almost two years by the time the charter was written. And that charter, as you guys know, and I'm sure most of the listeners know broadly, you know, basically says that we want to have a post-war world that is founded on self-government free, sovereign nations uh, res that, that respect borders, uh, that have a sense of the rule of law, that believe in human dignity, that there's uh, an equitable peace after the war, there's open markets uh, and freedom of the seas and open trade opportunities. Uh, so that kind of uh, sets the groundwork uh, for what over the years is starts to be known as the liberal international order, rules-based democratic order is a mouthful. <clears throat> Uh, but basically what that order is, it's what the, uh, the, the era after World War II, 45 on, uh, was kind of premised on. Uh, uh, and, and what it describes is what it is. Uh, democratic governance uh, is, is encouraged, is promoted, is defended. Uh, rules and norms of behavior are uh, codified, are, are developed, and 
at, at their best at defended and promoted uh, by those who agree with the liberal order. Uh, and there's a liberal, which in, this is the old classical definition of liberal, which means freedom oriented. Political and economic institutions are, are set in place and, and, or, and grow and encouraged to grow. And, and then all governments are encouraged or called upon to live up to the responsibilities of, of nationhood, which includes uh, promoting order within your borders, uh, respecting uh, those uh, on the other side of your borders, uh, <clears throat> making sure you're uh, uh, living up to the uh, responsibilities of nationhood internally by uh, not mistreating your citizens and things like that. So that's kind of the broad, uh, you know, uh, uh, definition of this uh, idea of a liberal international order Thank you. and its roots, where it comes from. Thank you for explaining that. And uh, I, it encompasses some institutions, correct, as far as I believe the League of Nations, which now is the UN. Um. Yeah, I would say that uh, there are uh, both structure institutions and, and conceptual institutions that are, uh, uh, that are uh, uh, parts of the, inter of the liberal and national order. Uh, uh, you know, the things like uh, you mentioned uh, the United Nations would would at its best be that when it's functioning at its best, it, it would be uh, certainly an outgrowth of the liberal international order. I would submit that, and you and I have talked about this before, Joy, uh, the UN doesn't really live up to its uh, responsibilities or its charter in uh, in, in defending the principles of, of uh, liberal governance or uh, liberal order very often. That's a subject for another podcast. Yeah, well, actually, I was actually going to get into that, touch on it a little bit, because recently with this going on in Afghanistan, uh, the U.N. Security yeah. Council had voted to um, pass a resolution telling the Taliban they must grant safe passage to eligible Afghans. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, Which, well, not interestingly, but Russia and China both did not vote at all. They abstained. Right. So we have questions as to whether the UN is a um, the right institution well, it, to be in this right. rules-based. Yeah. I mean, if you can't yeah, trust I, the yeah. Taliban, who can you trust? I, I don't, that's you right. Know, that's I, mean, right. I take them that's for their exactly. word when they say things, so, you know. Exactly. Uh, well, that's, uh, that pretty much says it all, too, that, you know, the UN uh, and, and two key members of the permanent members of the Security Council don't even uh, agree to, to support uh, the notion that people have the freedom of movement and the freedom of of uh, of uh, travel, uh, which is a, a kind of a basic human right, which the UN says it believes in, uh, but uh, but the liberal international order, you know, called for the promotion and respect for human rights, uh, the expansion of free trade, and so uh, you know at the beginning, uh, people like Harry Truman uh, forged key institutions. Uh, NATO comes to mind. Uh, the United States pushed the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. We uh, we promoted free trade through things like GATT, which is, is not called GATT anymore. Uh, WTO, um, I WTO, think. WTO, exactly. Uh, and other tariff lowering initiatives. Uh, by the way, on the idea that this also is very much in our self interest. That, you know, this isn't just altruism. This is enlightened self interest. The American Americans concluded, I think, after World War II, that we would try to reshape the world in a way that uh, helped uh, uh, strengthen our own uh, role in the world and strengthen our own reach and uh, and enhance our own power by helping by by in effect refashioning the world somewhat in, in, in an image America really uh, could uh, appreciate it and, and embrace uh, 
And, you, and you, um, what you said right there, you bring me to my next um, question, really, is do you think that this, the us enforcing the rules-based democratic order uh, makes America look like they're policing the world? Yeah, I think it does. And uh, I think it does uh, to both critics inside the United States uh, uh, who are on the left and right, for sure, as well as as well as critics outside the United States. I, I would, I would, one thing I'd say, Joy and Mark, is that it's not, uh, this isn't uh, just America's order. Uh, you know, this is an order that benefits those who uh, participate in it. Uh, this, and, and there's empirical evidence to show that over the last 40, since 1945, over the last 70 uh, plus years. Um, and so it's not just the United States that, that polices this order. Uh, it's, it's, the free world, and we have partners who help us do that. I, I you know, I, I watched uh, about a month or two ago on National Geographic. There was a one of the stations. There was a documentary on North Korea, and I remember as I watched it, and uh, I believe the reporter's name was Lucy Ling. I, I forget, but she was touring the country, and obviously she had had her handlers with her. Um, but the people there, and, and again, and I lived in China for five weeks, not lived, but I visited China for five weeks when I was young, as I was telling you, and I saw communism firsthand, and even as a young person, I could kind of tell what it was, but when I watched this documentary of the North Koreans, I, I just couldn't help but think, like, somebody's got to get over there and free these people and, you know, mm -hmm. give them some yeah. roller coasters, give them some, you know, <laughs> give them some uh, McDonald's or whatever it is, because yeah. the, the people would just you know, horrified. So I guess and whenever I'm asked about, you know, world police, I, I always think to myself at the at the next, you know, UN Council meeting, can't everyone get together and be like, let's go over there and free the North Koreans or, or yeah. things along that line. Again, and I don't mean to, I know that's obviously uh, some people, it's a touchy subject, but to me, um, there is definitely a need for, and I guess it comes down to good versus evil almost, like you just said, if, if it's not us, if it's not the British or the Canadians or the Norwegians or all these countries that just came together to do what they could in Kabul, um, others will eventually do it, uh, and ones that may not be as friendly as, say, the United States. I, 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 of course, I think everyone will say that the U.S. is not perfect, and of course we've had our faults over the years, but I think we do it pretty well, uh, and it's one of the uh, better places to live on the planet uh, in, in terms of freedom and, like you said, the post-World War II liberal order, so that's right. It. I agree, and I was going to say too, um, Alan, is that I mold that over my head as well, and I think that, um, yes, someone has to do it, and if it's not us, it's going to be someone else, but when we have these institutions that are international and they make decisions like the UN Security Council telling the Taliban what they think, who's going to enforce it? Who enforces it? That's right. Well, I always, uh, exactly, there's no, you know, uh, while there is something known as the International Criminal Court, it has no real writ or jurisdiction. It has no sheriffs. It has no uh, army uh, to, to do its work. The UN Security Council passes resolutions, and then the burden of enforcing those resolutions it falls to nation states, responsible parties, and that's usually the United States and a coalition, uh, an ad hoc coalition usually, that do goes and enforces it. So you're exactly right, and uh, you know that uh, that's something that uh, we there there have been people who've said you know let's look at creating a standing army or something like that that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable a standing international army uh, but the alternative is either have somebody else do the enforcing his values we don't share or we and our close partners our close friends who share our values uh, uh, carry out you know enforce some modicum of order in the world and I I do think that's the 
the best alternative. Uh, yeah, of all and maybe that not exists. even need an outstanding army, like you said, but it seems like we do come together, like you just mentioned with Kabul and evacuating people there with our allies. And then again, uh, with the French down in Africa in the Sahel there as well. Yeah, yeah. Every, everyone uh, likes to have allies when they, when they are uh, going up against the, uh, going up against it, I guess we would say back home. So uh, that definitely, I think a strong coalition is, is 100% uh, necessary in order to, to, to keep that uh, liberal order in, in check, I guess, is the, is the correct That's right, word. and that, to, to answer, exactly, and to answer Joy's point that was, you know, 10 minutes ago, uh, it's one way to show, uh, if, you're, if we do these types of things in coalition and alliance with others, it shows that we aren't, uh, we, the United States, isn't the one dictating things. It's a coalition of like-minded nations that, that, are, uh, that are playing this role. Uh, the United States isn't, uh, isn't dictating. It's working in uh, coalition or in partnership with these other countries to do it. And I think uh, that's another reason to have allies is for the perception's sake, to be honest, um, both at home and abroad, but maybe especially abroad in those cases. That's that's good marketing, Alan. What's what we call that? It's, right. it's quality quality marketing for for uh, those that's activities. Right. We that. talk a lot about allies, um, Alan, um, over in South China Sea. It's right. pretty heated there as well. Argument over who's able to have what sovereignty over their um, territories, and that also went to a tribunal court. I believe mm -hmm. it was an international based. Um, yeah. So someone's got to enforce it and. That leads into my third question, which you both already brought up, is um, do you believe we are in danger of a, a powerful autocratic regime such as China replacing um, the current rules-based democratic order? Well, that's, yes. I mean, that's certainly Xi Jinping's goal. He, he says we need to move beyond the, the current order. He makes that very clear. Uh, China, unlike Russia, uh, is, a, uh, is a nation that has the... Uh, the heft, uh, the industrial, technological, economic, uh, uh, and military uh, might to challenge the United States in the way that Russia can't. China, in fact, has those those uh, attributes of a great power that the Soviet Union had, but Russia doesn't have. Russia, as you guys both know, is is a nation that's actually withering away. Its, it's population is declining. It has a lot of nuclear weapons, the most on Earth. So that that makes it. Uh, a power that can't be trifled with, but it, it can't do the things China can do. And Xi Jinping has made it very clear he wants to move past this existing order, which is an order that he feels hems in his country, uh, constrains and constricts his country. Uh, and he, I do think, is, is, is setting the table for a way to do that. I think the only way that that succeeds, though, is if the United States uh, abandons or, or uh, abdicates its role uh, of leadership of this liberal order. Uh, China's, uh, I don't think, will be able to push the United States out, but the United States might just kind of limp away or slouch away, uh, which we have done before uh, at other times in our history. It'd be very uh, uh, destructive, I would say maybe catastrophic if we did that uh, here in the 2020s and 2030s because of China. Uh, I, Mark, you said something the other uh, moment ago. We, you know, there's nowhere else to go. You know, uh, another way to look at that or a version of that is uh, there's no one else who can carry this mantle. In 1945, the British could, in good conscience, 
give up the mantle of leadership of the liberal democratic world uh, to the United States because they saw that the United States shared basically broadly the same principles that the British uh, had and the British had defended and promoted. There's no one like that now. We don't have anyone we can give that mantle to. Uh, the, those who share our values don't have the uh, capabilities. Those who have the capabilities don't share our values, and that's China and Russia, but especially China. And, and that must have been one of the, not to bring this up again, but one of the horrifying things, if I was an American over in Kabul, I would have said to myself, if the Americans aren't coming to get us, mm -hmm. then nobody is. We're, we're really that's right. up the creek here. I, I didn't say the full phrase, that's but right. we're really up the creek if nobody's coming over to get us here. And it's, it's, it's also uh, interesting that um, in Joy and I, uh, next week, uh, we're doing a, a four-part series on September 11th. Now it's, it's 20 years later of September 11th, and it's, it's kind of a little bit crazy that he, here we are 20 years later, and the Taliban has just inserted itself right back into the news after they were, you know, 20 years on September 11th, mm -hmm. after the attacks, they were, you know, all that was talked about. And then here we are 20 years later, and it's almost like a reset. So it's, it's been a, a wild couple of weeks. And on top of that, they've got some more sophisticated equipment as well, military-wise. I would like yeah, a Black Hawk helicopter. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> it's, yeah. A, it's, a, yeah, it's a terrible, uh, a terrible uh, tragic irony that what has happened uh, and it was avoidable uh, you know uh, uh, we don't have to uh, turn Afghanistan into a Jeffersonian democracy I, but for a low amount of money and we had uh, treasure and we had not expended any blood in Afghanistan since February of 2020 uh, we were maintaining that baseline modicum yeah. of order and we were able to strike uh, you know terrorists in this seat of terror, uh, and we can't do those things now. And then you guys, it's not just a loss, it's a double loss, because they gain uh, the kinds of, uh, you know, tactical weapons that they've never uh, had, really. Uh, and uh, they'll be able to put, that'll enable them to be, to put down uh, rivals and uh, challengers like those that are in the north that don't recognize their power, and it will be, uh, it, 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 you're right, 20 years later, it's, it's really tragic and sad. You mentioned it, that. I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say it's funny. I've heard a lot of people say, uh, you know, well, they were left Black Hawks, so they were left. They don't know how to fly them. Well, they don't know how to use them. And I wanted to say, don't worry. They'll find somebody they can mm -hmm. pay that will teach them. Like it's not. Well, well, whoever said that to you, Mark, should look at the cover of the Wall Street Journal website right now. They have a picture of a Black Hawk helicopter with the Taliban flag yeah. in the air. Uh, I mean, if if you have the money and the and the in the resources, you'll find a way. Is what I like to yeah. say. So. Well, also, I think there's probably dispossessed former members of the Afghan national military that'll probably work with the Taliban just to, for survival's sake. You know, mm. uh, some of them. So, but it's tragic, and I'm sure your four-part series will delve into a lot of that. It's, it's, there's a lot to dig in yes, to there. 20 years later. And you just discussed in your article um, that we're talking about here is uh, the stateless. Uh, people like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, um, now ISIS-K is against the Taliban, well, I didn't say totally against, but it's, they just um, mm -hmm. not working together. Um, but with the Taliban in possession of our military equipment, and there could be a rise of extremist groups all over the globe. And they could right. also well, funnel that money, ca I mean, the weapons, ammo, and all that can now be spread out to similar-minded people almost as the same way we would supply our allies to help keep the liberal order 
they're going to use these supplies to supply their allies to help keep the terrorist order. So. Right. I think that's true. And, and uh, it starts in Afghanistan, and it, it will, as it was before, it will again become a, uh, a metastasis for terror, a, a, a cancer that will spread uh, from there. Uh, and uh, they will use those weapons to, to promote what their vision is, which is certainly not a liberal order. It's, uh, it's either uh, a theocratic uh, jihadist order or just utter uh, chaos. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I don't want to live under that or China's idea. No, I, I am I'm very, very happy with the laws and the uh, lifestyle here of good old Sebastian, Florida. <laughs> I am perfectly okay with everything we have here and do not want to switch up on that. So. Well, that, that, by the way, is, you know, we, and, and uh, Joy knows this, uh, the article, my uh, part one, I think, talks about this. We, we just don't uh, take, we, we don't appreciate, the average American doesn't appreciate what this liberal order has given us. Uh, you know, it is enlightened self-interest, but it is mostly self-interest. <laughs> really, it is. Mm -hmm. And it is things like being able to walk down the streets of Sebastian or Indianapolis or Colorado Springs or wherever. Um, it is uh, being able to uh, uh, purchase goods uh, at a, an incredibly uh, affordable price because of transaction costs being lower. It is being able to communicate seamlessly and immediately with your son or daughter half a world away uh, by computer or by phone. These things are the, uh, uh, the off uh, flows of the outflows of blood border. But General Milley even puts it in more grim terms, you know, and when he says, uh, if you really want to know what the liberal order gives us, is it gives us a world without great power war. And then he tells us what this was about two months ago. I think he he described what the world was like with great power war, and and the numbers are ghastly. You know, we can't even think begin to imagine them. People who were born in the 1950s or 60s, 70s or 80s, uh, people young adults born in the 90s can't grasp the kinds of human loss that these great power wars did to uh, nations. Uh, in the 19-teens, in the 1930s and 40s, you know, uh, uh, tens of millions of people dead. He talked about, uh, Millie used this really stunning number. He said uh, uh, 26,000 American personal, personnel were killed in 1918 during the Battle of Meuse-Argonne in 56 days. Uh, 57,000 American personnel were killed in an eight-week span in the summer of 44. And then he says, that's the butcher's bill of great power war. That's what the liberal international order that's been in existence for seven and a half decades is designed to prevent. And we just don't take, uh, we just don't appreciate that or understand that. We just take it for granted. Mm. And uh, it's not, uh, it doesn't happen by accident or, or uh, by magic. It, it takes America projecting power along with its allies into the world. No, I agree Especially more. if it didn't personally affect, like, my generation, you know, so I understand what you're saying. We forget. Well, think about it, Joy. I mean, I, I'm 50. I was born in 71. Uh, my dad was uh, served in Vietnam. My grandfathers were both at D-Day. Uh, mm. I didn't have to go off to war. Right. That's because uh, the, my grandfathers and dad made the world better. Uh, you know, there's still wars. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we know, all of us know, enjoy your husband was in the service. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my dearest friends are, are Marines and, uh, and F-15 pilots, uh, literally. So I know the sacrifice uh, in a way 
once removed, uh, right. but it's different than great power war that literally devours cities and destroys nations. Uh, and and uh, we just take that for granted that people uh, who have lived in relative peace uh, yeah. and uh, prosperity for their whole lives. It's, it's funny because I'm actually just about the exact same age as you, Alan, and we're still very incredibly young, just in case anybody asks. But that being, <laughs> that being said, uh, I couldn't echo the statement enough of not knowing what, uh, for lack, not, not real world, but, you know, th there was no wars growing up um, when right. I was a kid. There was mm -hmm. just not. Uh, the thought of the United States ever being attacked, such as September 11th, simply wasn't, you know, like you, you never, ever, ever thought that, you know, not, not in a, sure. of course, nobody realized that they would use civilian jetliners as weapons, but right. you also never thought that, like, uh, you know, you were going to see B-52 suddenly appear over Boston and carpet bomb us. My mother, right. my mother likes to tell me that there are two instances in her life, she's 87 now, or six, that she'll never forget. One was when uh, Pearl Harbor happened because they got sent home from school, and as her, and I think she was eight or nine or whatever she was, when she was walking back, she, you know, her and her girlfriends thought in any minute, um, you know, sure. the Japanese might or They're the Germans attack might us. attack yeah. us and drop bombs on them, so they were scared to death. Uh, and the other time was when JFK was killed because we're Irish Catholics from Boston. But sure. to me, I, I certainly will never forget September 11th um, and any of the events on that day. And I just remember thinking, you know, in my head that day, I remember first uh, I had a buddy in New York and that was so long ago. I don't think we had if we did have cell phones, they were like a hundred dollars a minute during the day. So we were just doing emails. Sure. But he messaged me and we, he was, you know, and he, we thought that it was they were filming a movie. And it must have been a CGI, you know, type of thing. And the smoke coming from the top of the building is part of the movie set because there's no way yeah. that the United States could ever mm. be attacked. And I think that that was an incredible wake-up call um, to, to the fact that, you know, nobody is, is immune from war in, mm -hmm. in general. But like you said, avoid, I mean, and again, September 11th is one of the most horrible acts in the history of the world. But it, right. it's, it's also not, uh, like you said, that there wasn't a... Uh, a large-scale war where, you know, the, the numbers of people dying during World War II or even in Vietnam are obscene compared to, and again, one American death is too many for me, but they're obscene if you compare them to the war on terror from 2001 to 2020 compared to right. those past wars. And it's, it's almost as if this, those wars were fought so that it would become less of a, you know, more of a liberal order like you're talking about. That that's right. Sense? I think that's what their sacrifice is about. That makes perfect sense, I think. And that's, that's what that sacrifice is about, and that's what General Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is trying to get across, that there's real uh, uh, blood and treasure, but mostly blood uh, that, that comes if you let, uh, that, that will be shed in enormous amounts if, if you let this liberal order go away, um, uh, and or there'll be the loss of individual liberty if you let uh, it be shaped by a, a country that would share our values. So. Right. It's, uh, but that's something you used the word marketing a minute ago, Mark. It's, uh, it's something that our uh, political leaders of both parties have not been very effective at explaining. Uh, you know, what are the benefits of the way the world is that, since 1945 of this liberal order to the average American? Uh, it's not just something they talk about in think tanks at Washington, in Washington D.C. or New York City or or Munich Security Conference. These are things that really have a direct impact on Americans. And you know our motto here is peace through strength, so we mm -hmm. believe in keeping a strong military and hope that they will too to prevent uh, future wars or 
Yeah, it's, 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 it's of my opinion that the, the last, I mean, in our allies, but the, the United States military and its military allies are really what is the one uh, shining whatever that keeps the world from going into complete madness. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think if you're a madman right before you press that button, you think, am I going to have to deal with the USA military and its allies, which I, I don't think anyone in their right mind would like to unless they happen to have superheroes on their side, but I don't think that's happening yet. So uh, I, I agree with all that, but. Right. Um, yeah, and that, you know, that's the kind of the extreme argument against having a, mil a big, a, a strong military, like you referenced, uh, those of us who believe uh, in a Reaganite uh, 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 defense posture uh and of course the american security council foundation uh, leads that effort uh, uh recognize the benefits and the wisdom of peace through strength but the, those some people argue that well this is just throwing money into the military waste money and uh you know or, or throwing money at at these things uh overseas is always a waste and certainly there is some waste let's be honest but uh the uh it's really and the numbers show that the benefits uh, of investing a little, and I would submit 3% is too little, but 4 or 5% of GDP uh, to keep the peace, to keep some semblance of order, uh, is proven over time to be better than risking temptations to a trial of strength, as Churchill talked about, or tempting, to use Mark's term, a madman uh, from uh, taking a risk he, he shouldn't take. Uh, and then fighting a war where we end up devoting during World War II, there were some years we devoted 40% of GDP to um, to the military, and of course we lost 450,000 men uh, in that war. Uh, in World War One, we lost 100,000 men in just uh, like uh, I think it was 17 months of fighting. Uh, you know, so we were in the war very late, as you guys know. So it's uh, it's we can be penny wise and pound foolish. Uh, you and uh, I have discussed, Alan, before about that economics, uh, economically putting right. money toward building up our military. I mean, I'm sure we're right. not going to go back to World War II strength, but at least, like you said, getting the numbers to a strength where we deter right. the enemy. If you could determine, that's right. And if we are in a Cold War II, which is what a lot of people think, Henry Kissinger thinks so, Neil Ferguson, the great historian who's British or, uh, and uh, who wrote the great book Colossus, about America, both of them use the phrase Cold War II or New Cold War. If we are, uh, then we probably ought to increase defense spending up to Cold War levels, which you and I have talked about mm. that many times, mm -hmm. Joy. We're not anywhere close to that, no, by not. the way, 3%. So, Well, Mark, any, uh, Alan, any closing thoughts on the liberal international order? No, I, I, it's fascinating to discuss it with you. Always a pleasure, Joy, and good to have Mark part of the call and always enjoy doing it. Alan, it was fantastic to meet you, I wanted to just say finally. And just to let you know, uh, I know a guy like yourself is incredibly busy, but next week our four-part series starts Tuesday. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. On Tuesday we have a NYPD um, detective sergeant who was in one of the towers uh, when the first plane hit. On Wednesday, we have my cousin, who is an author and an attorney who was working in downtown New York City as a lawyer um, when September 11th happened, and he left his job as an attorney and joined the Army. The story gets a little, uh, you know, the, the, the juice of the story is my cousin is very much an academic, not the type of guy you would have thought would have joined the Army to go to war, but that's what September 11th 
you know, spurred inside oh. of him. Yeah. On the day after that, we have a uh, young man who, well, he's now our age, but who was a young man at the time, who was his first job out of college as an investment banker for Morgan Stanley. Uh, he was on the 73rd floor of the, I believe, the North Tower. I, I get them confused, but whatever one was hit second. He began evacuating, was on the 33rd floor of his tower when it was hit and was able to make it out. And then on Friday, we have another author. Uh, he's from the New Yorker. He's a great guy named John Kenny, and he did a documentary called Looking for My Brother. His brother, Tom, who recently passed away of cancer, sadly, uh, was on the Massachusetts urban search and rescue team and he was up in you know the rubble for eight days after september 11th going through it all so it's it's going to be an interesting four days of um various viewpoints of the september 11th attack so hopefully you can tune in and hear him so we have our our professional mr dowd uh, giving us his approval but it was great to finally meet you alan and uh, i I appreciate your wisdom that well thank you for the kind words that sounds like a wonderful series to have those firsthand accounts and remembrances are essential and i'm glad joy and you are getting them on yes, a digital uh, platform to, yes i'm <laughs> keeping joy yeah. quite busy I, so. that's good but to, to, to be able to save those is important because uh yes. we need to hear those stories and people who are in the generation behind mine need to hear those stories mm-hmm. uh firsthand i think that that's really you're doing a great public service uh, uh those are those will be fascinating i'll try to listen to them Absolutely, and we'll, we'll record them and get them to you. Yes, Amelia, a reminder of why we're in Afghanistan, why we were in Afghanistan in the first place. But That's right. Thank you, Alan, for coming on. And we appreciate you always both. talking to you. Thank you both. Have a good uh, Labor Day weekend. Thank you. You, you too, too, Alan, and uh, I hate to say this, but I guess go Boilermakers, and I'll, I'll have <laughs> to keep an eye on them. Uh, that's right, and go BC. All right, thank you, sir. Have a great day, Alan. Thanks, Bye-bye. Alan. Bye-bye. Check out Alan's articles on our website under Position Papers, The Dowd Report at www.ascf.us. If you like what you heard today, please consider uh, donating to our educational programs in this podcast. As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, we are having a special right now, any donation of $25 or more, and you will get a free copy of Mark Levin's American Marxism. And all of our podcasts can be viewed on the website as well as YouTube and Rumble. Thank Facebook, you. Apple Podcasts, the whole nine oh, yards. Keep going. Please, yeah, the, we, we have our, our, our podcasts can be heard on all formats. We're, we're just getting them all out now, and we appreciate you tuning in. And Joy and I look forward to bringing you a ton of series on both national security and a little entertainment, yes. too. Yes, we do. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. Have and a thank great you. week.